Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, a story of an Ethiopian eunuch. We discuss the ways in which he would have been pressed to the margins of the Israelite temple community or other communities like it. And we share the joy in his realization that there is nothing to prevent him from diving right square into this community of Jesus followers. We see Philip's beautiful example of responsive, respectful sharing of the gospel. And we learn of a talented puppeteer from days past. I think you may know him. Thanks for joining. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, day by day. That's a song, isn't it? Is that a Is that Christian from God's song? Bell, day by day. Yeah. When I was in college, <laughs> this might be something you don't know about me. When I was in college, I was in a puppet troupe. And we... No, you were not. <laughs> I was. You were yeah. not in a puppet troupe. I was in a puppet troupe. And this was one of our numbers, Day by Day, from Godspell. And we would make the little puppets. And I had like a little bear and a little, I don't know, like a rabbit or something. And I would make them sing, Day by Day. Okay, this <laughs> is revelatory information. Yeah. But then how come, you know, one time I, I told have many you, layers of complex, Amy. You know, that's true. <laughs> but, but like... what? Okay, but there was one time, <laughs> I shouldn't bring this up because it's a traumatic memory for you, but... Oh, no. No, that I told you, you reminded me a little bit of a Muppet, and you got so <laughs> offended. It's different to say, like, you seem like somebody who would be a great puppeteer, <laughs> and to say, you seem like a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean, like, existentially Muppet-like. Well, maybe I didn't. Maybe hey, I didn't. Hey, Bobby, you look like a Muppet today. You... <laughs> Thank you. I don't think I said you look like a Muppet. Well, maybe I, I did. Think. You're wearing a fuzzy purple outfit. <laughs> it was a fleece. <laughs> <laughs> That's your outfit from the waist up. <laughs> so eunuchs, eh? Yeah. So so today we are still in the book of Acts. We are in chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Yeah. And we meet a eunuch. We do. So we last time we finished, I think, at the ch end of chapter seven. Yes. With the martyrdom of Stephen. Yeah. So we haven't skipped a whole lot of material, but is there any sort of general setting you want to offer just before we even start reading the text? Yeah. I mean, I think that the only thing that I really want to say is there's this theme in the book of Acts that the spread of the gospel starts in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it spreads is because of what we read last time, where mm -hmm. the officials and the religious leaders in Jerusalem start persecuting Christians. Mm -hmm. And so Christians flee into Samaria and the surrounding region, and they start preaching the gospel there. Mm -hmm. and so there's this kind of interesting theme that develops, which is, you know, the more you try to suppress the gospel, the more, the more it spreads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Philip, who we meet today, who's one of the seven 
Hellenistic Jewish deacons that we met last time along with Stephen. He's one of the ones that flees to Samaria and starts preaching the gospel there. So we'll talk some about eunuchs and whatnot as we move in, but should I read the first little bit of text first? Yeah, I think so. Why not? Why not? Okay. So I'm going to pick up then in verse 26, and I'm reading the NRSV. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. I want to pause there for a minute because I already have so many questions. (laughs) So many questions. Yeah. (laughs) So many questions. But this first verse, this get up and go toward the south, does that remind you of Abraham in Genesis 12? You know, it has never reminded me of that until you say that. And now I'm like, how did that never occur to me? Yeah, it totally does. Can you say more about that? Well, I mean, the beginning of, of the story of Abraham, Genesis 12, I mean, it it would make sense that it would resonate with me because the name of the Torah portion in Hebrew is Lech Lecha, which is like, get up and go. Like it's yeah. sort of like emphatic, get yourself up and go. Yeah. And so that seems to be echoed here. But this is God's initial call to Abraham to leave what he has known. And it's the, and Abraham dutifully obliges. Yeah. And it's the beginning of the covenant with Abraham. Yeah. Now I love that connection. And, you know, it's similar in that, Abraham doesn't really know, like, I mean, at that point, it's go to the land I will show you, right? It's yeah, not even clear it's a where very, he's headed. Yeah, it's very vague. It's, yeah, <laughs> go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know when to stop. <laughs> I love that connection. And I love that in this text that Philip is not told what he's doing or why he's going. He's just yeah. told the angel shows up and says, get up and go, you know, toward Gaza. Yeah. And and he gets up and goes. He has no idea where he's headed or why he's headed there or what's he going to do when he gets there or it, nothing. Yeah. But that obedience of Philip, I think, I love that comparison to the obedience of Abraham. Okay. So then we meet a eunuch, an yeah. Ethiopian eunuch. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the eunuchness before we talk about the Ethiopianness. Okay. What should we know about eunuchs? I mean, the way that I generally talk about eunuchs is that they are... They're generally thought of as castrated men. There is, There seems to be sort of men who are castrated to become eunuchs. And then there's yeah. also a category of sort of naturally occurring eunuchs, which is yeah. not entirely clear what that means, but maybe they're asexual or something like that. Yeah. And they are often in the ancient world, they rise to positions of some influence in royal courts mm-hmm. because they are not a threat to the queen. Or they're not a threat to the king's harem, you know, right. they are not sexually interested in the women who are around. And so they become trusted advisors. And here you see this eunuch is, I mean, in charge of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia, like this guy is important. He's, yeah. he's a big deal in Ethiopia. Yeah. So I think to me that those are some of the key things about eunuchs. But what else would you add in there? I mean, the other thing I would say is that, you know, coming from the Hebrew Bible, there is, there's a prohibition in Deuteronomy against castration. So you you can't castrate someone on purpose. Mm -hmm. And there's also a recognition, as you said, in in the Talmud that that some people are just born, born castrated, whatever exactly that means. But it seems to mean in that text that they can't reproduce. Yeah. It's a little unclear to me whether it also means that they are 
not interested in sex because part of the concern seems to be that if they marry Israelite women, then neither the eunuch nor the woman is able to fulfill the commandment to procreate, which is really important in in the biblical text. Yeah. So people who are born into that status are always a little bit outside the community. So much of the community is set up around this ideal that a man and a woman will get married and procreate, that if you can't participate in that societal structure, you're you're kind of going to be an outsider. Yeah, that's a really helpful way, really helpful way to frame that. And, you know, the this eunuch has become a pretty important character in interpretations from the LGBTQIA community mm-hmm. um, because he's, you know, he's sort of marginal in terms of like the way society, I like the way you said that, the way society is set up and it's gender expectations and its expectations about reproduction. This character, it's not clear how the eunuch fits into that whole framework. And so he becomes this kind of figure that exists sort of outside or around or across these kinds of divisions. And and thinking about the eunuch as somebody who's sort of marginalized that way in terms of societal structures, and then you could think of him as representing LGBTQIA folks, or you could, where you had my head going was, you know, even just representing people who, for whatever reason, choose not to be right. married or are not able to have children or right. there are societal expectations that are placed on them that they are either don't want to or not able to mm-hmm. to perform the way society expects them to. This character can kind of take up those folks' experiences in a, in a really interesting way. I love that. I love that. I really love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole host of reasons that that set of social expectations might not work for a person. And I love thinking of this eunuch as as representative of that community within the community. You had mentioned in Deuteronomy that not being is being prohibited to castrate someone. Mm-hmm. There's also a prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 that a person who is well, I mean, what it says is no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, mm-hmm. which some folks apply to this eunuch. Do you have mm-hmm. thoughts about how, like, what what would that mean exactly? It's a good question. I mean, what I've read is that they wouldn't be able to participate in temple worship, like the assembly yeah. of the Lord, meaning, you know, participation in the, the ritual life of the community. Yeah. So I guess that's I guess that's my best guess. Yeah. Because the other option seems to me they would be, I almost want to say like excommunicated, but that's a that's a weird word to use here. That 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 they would be completely pushed out of of the community and I guess I just like cut off from their people but that seems like that they would have used that terminology if yeah if that's what they meant so I don't know cut off from cultic life is my best guess so that that makes good sense to me so it's the sort of sense of like when Israel gathers for worship so if they're at the temple or in those contexts presumably a eunuch would fit into this category of someone with crushed testicles or a yeah. penis cut off so they would they would not be allowed to join in those worship acts of the community. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. It was it just brings kind of an interesting background to this character. Yeah, no, it really does. It really does. It does. So then that makes it sort of all the more surprising that it tells us he has returned from worship in Jerusalem. Right? Worship in Jerusalem. I mean, what would that be? Like, do we think there were other forms of worship happening? Do we think that he was he was participating in in worship? He certainly seems to be interested in in the Israelite religion. He's reading Isaiah and he's going to Jerusalem to participate yeah. in some kind of worship. So there's a whole debate about about this guy, like all the way down. And, you know, there's even a question of is he Jewish or is he Gentile? 
The text tells us he's from Ethiopia. Yeah. Ethiopia in the sort of telling of the ancient world was sort of uh, East Africa. So it included what we now call Ethiopia, but also like Sudan and Somalia, that sort of region over there. So he's mm -hmm. North African. There were Jewish communities in Africa at Elephant, yeah. Tiny and elsewhere. And so possibly he's Jewish, although the text does not tell us that. Right. So he is often read as a Gentile who has come, I think like you're saying to, you know, he's on a journey. He's come to Jerusalem. He's culturally interested. He sort of wants to pay respects to the God of Israel because that's what you do when you go visit a place. And so he's come to, he's come to the temple. You know, in the in Herod's temple, there was a court of the Gentiles where foreigners were actually allowed to gather in the mm -hmm. sort of outer ring of the temple. Mm -hmm. And then there were sort of porticos that you could pass through if you were Jewish, which mm -hmm. he would not have, Gentiles would not have been allowed to pass through. So it's sort of, it seems like there were Gentiles who came to Jerusalem and did go to the temple to worship. And maybe he's, maybe he's one of those folks. Yeah. So it's interesting that like this sort of marginal figure, this figure that's hard to categorize is also hard to categorize in, in this way. Yeah, you know, and, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about a community called Beta Israel that is Ethiopian Jews. Yeah. That, and I don't know enough about about the history. I know that, that the stories that surround that community would make it a, a very ancient, longstanding community. And I just don't know enough. You know, I, I don't know enough to speak intelligently about it beyond that. But I don't know. But it's interesting to think also that there's a possibility that there was there was a Jewish community there and that he was part of it to the extent that he was able to be part of it, given his, yeah. you know, castration status. Yeah. I kind of like the openness. Yeah. No, I do, too. You know, at some point, I feel like, well, I don't know. In my head, I sort of have to make some decisions along the way in order to interpret this passage. Yeah. But it does yeah. kind of make you think like whatever interpretation you settle on is is endlessly open to the other possibility. Like you can't quite foreclose things. And I think that almost that whichever way you go with it, the idea that he is, he's not able to have access to the center of the community for, you know, whether he's Jewish or not. Yeah. Is really central. Yeah. No, that's really well said. Whichever way you end up there, he has gone to the temple and presumably assuming that either because he's a Gentile and not allowed to pass through the portico and mm -hmm. or because he's a eunuch and there is a prohibition against eunuchs joining in the worship. For those reasons, he has not been able to fully participate in the temple worship, which he went to participate in. Yeah, that's important. And you're right. It it works either way. You you interpret his status. I, mm -hmm. I appreciate you're saying that. Okay, so then picking up in verse 29, then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He said, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. I totally get this image in my head of, of Philip like running, like trying to run and keep up with a chariot. Yeah. 
which is very entertaining to me. Yeah, there's a lot of humor in this story, actually, that, you know, if you have a mind to, like, see it in your head, I don't know that the story's meant to be humorous. Philip's just running after this chariot, and he disappears later, and, like, there's all kinds of things. Okay, so he gets up next to this cart, and he hears the eunuch is reading aloud yeah. from Isaiah, which already, yeah. I mean, already, I'm like, he has a copy of Isaiah, and yeah. he's reading to himself, and he's, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that he's literate. He's high up in the government, but that yeah. that was not a common thing. It's not like people just had their, you know, little pocket Bible that they could yeah. pull out. Yeah. No, that's right. And so, the, you know, one of the questions is, well, why why on earth would he have a scroll of Isaiah? I think that's the right question. And so, you know, this is part of that argument we were talking about before of is he Jewish or is he a God-fearer? Does he have previous experience? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he's important, like you're saying. And so he stopped in Jerusalem. You know, maybe whoever he was visiting, you know, had access to a scroll of Isaiah. And he was like, hey, that's really interesting. Can I? That's an interesting thought that he got the scroll while he was in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. The text is entirely silent on these issues. Yeah. So we don't, we just don't know. Yeah. But he does. And he's, I mean, presumably he's reading, he's reading Septuagint Isaiah. He's reading it in Greek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not that surprising that the guy in charge of the treasury of Ethiopia would be able to read yeah. in Greek. It yeah. is surprising that he's got a text of Isaiah, I think. I love his response to Philip's question so much, especially coming from some of the other sections in Luke. So, I mean, his response to Philip's question being, how would I be able to understand this if no one <laughs> can explain it to me? Like yeah. this text is not, it is not self-evident yeah. what the biblical text means. And we had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago when we were reading about uh, the road to Emmaus, right? I think that was the one yeah. where... um And we were remembering all the different times in Luke that Jesus had said something like, you already have had the prophets, you already have had, like, you all should get it by now. But it is clear that the people need someone to break it down a little more to them. And so at that point in this story, then this, this story starts to remind me, it's sort of like transitions from Abraham to reminding me of that story of Jesus's encounter with the the guys, I don't remember what their names were, with the guys. Cleopas and the <laughs> other one, yeah. Yeah, really Cleopas know one and of their the names. other one. Yeah, 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 on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I love in this text is that this guy knows he doesn't know, <laughs> right? Yes. Like in the past text, we've seen people who kind of think they know what they're talking about, but maybe they really don't. This yes. guy's like, I don't know what I'm reading. Like, what, what are you even talking about? How can I possibly know what I'm reading? Yeah. So the, the self-awareness, I think, is, is appreciated. I love that too. And you know, I almost read it as yes, self-awareness. And also, I mean, in some ways, I feel like this is the gift of being a little outside the center of community is that you don't have these, I don't, some of the social expectations, you know, whereas if you were a central part of the community, even Mm -hmm. if you know, you don't understand this text, you might not feel like you could be so upfront about it because you're supposed to understand the text and he's just he just puts it so succinctly you know he's just like no i don't know what this says (laughs) yeah (laughs) i also love the way that the the spirit like so the angel says go toward gaza but i'm not going to tell you why yeah now the spirit says go over by that chariot and stay with it yeah but doesn't say why yeah. And so I love the way that's sort of unfolding, like F- Philip is having sort of step by step to figure out what's going on here. And it's yeah. a very 
like, I mean, in, the, in one way, it's kind of aggressive to go running after somebody on a chariot. But <laughs> on the other hand, it's a little like he's he's a little bit sort of waiting, you know. Yeah. He's just taking it a step at a time. He's seeing he's seeing where we are before he sort of hops in the in the in the chariot. And he opens with a question, mm-hmm. which is always kind of which is always refreshing. You yeah. know, <laughs> instead of saying, let me allow me to pontificate. You know, yeah. he asks, <laughs> he asks mm-hmm. a question right. and it opens up this, this big conversation for them. What do you make of the fact that the text that is being read is Isaiah 53? It's very convenient for Philip. <laughs> <laughs> there are other places that he could have been reading that Philip would have been like, yeah, I don't know how to tie that in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah 53 is part of the suffering servant texts, as they are often referred, that yeah. are describing, it sounds like describing a person who is suffering through no fault of their own, and in fact seems to be serving as like a, they're suffering because of other people's sins, and it is somehow through, it. it it's somehow... It somehow works out like it somehow works out that these other people have have incurred guilt and that the punishment for that guilt can be inflicted on this innocent person. Yeah. 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 And this this servant song, which is the full song is in 5213 to 5312 is kind of probably in the Christian world, probably the most famous of the servant songs because it emphasizes that sort of vicarious suffering of the servant on behalf of others. Yeah. This text reminds me a little bit, like, I feel like we've had a version of this conversation previously, way back when we were talking about Luke chapter four, when Jesus announces himself in the synagogue sermon in Nazareth, and he mm-hmm. reads from Isaiah 61, mm-hmm. and he says, mm-hmm. today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, by which he's saying that the me in Isaiah is me, y'all. <laughs> like This yeah. is not the prophet, this is Jesus. And so Luke has made this connection for us in the gospel of Luke as the prophet speaking in Isaiah is really supposed to be Jesus. And then then making that connection again here. If you've read Luke and now you're reading Acts, we've been primed to know that we're supposed to think of this person as Jesus. So we can kind of go along with Philip, even though it's not really explicitly said exactly how Philip interprets this passage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I love about this is in verse 35... Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news. Yeah. Which is to say, Philip does not have some sort of predetermined way that he preaches the gospel. Like, I appreciate what you said. Like, he's lucky it was Isaiah 53 because, like, what would he have done if it was, like, Leviticus 13 or something? You know, (laughs) I don't know. But but he's – I love that he comes along. Like you're saying, he asks the question. He's invited into the chariot, and then he starts where the – eunuch is and he says okay this passage that you're reading let me start there yeah and then let me build out from there and tell you the rest of the thing but he starts where the guy is and says let, let me meet you there and then and then i'll then yeah. i'll proclaim the good the good news i love that i really love that that it he really is he's following the the lead of the eunuch you know yeah. that and he opened with a question and then the eunuch asked him a question and there's a particular text that they're starting with yes i love that this is not like a canned stump speech yeah. you know yeah. this is this is really in real life in real conversation with this actual human being that's exactly right so then i will read these last couple of verses beginning in 36 
As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The eunuch's question there is so interesting to me. So look, there's water. Mm. (laughs) And then what would keep me from being baptized? That is such an interesting way to raise that issue. Why do you think he says it that way? I had not thought about that question before, but I love it. And I love it, especially thinking about the ways in which... I mean, when I first read it, I saw it just sort of as like, this seems like a serious decision that I should think about before I decide that I'm going to, you know, throw my lot in with this group of faithful folks. But because there were specific barriers to eunuchs being able to participate fully in the religious life of Israel... It has a different tenor to it here. Yeah. What are you thinking as you read that? No, I mean, to me, that's exactly right. And, you know, Luke is, I just, I go back and forth because Luke is not pressing this point because you've got to do a little work to get there. Yeah. But when you do a little work to get there, it seems so clear to me. Yeah. You know, he's just been in the temple as we were talking about. There is a scriptural prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 about someone with a, you know, who's been castrated, participating in worship. If he's a Gentile, there is also a gate, like literally a gatekeeper who is preventing him from going into the innermost sanctums of the community. So his experience in Jerusalem was there are reasons why he cannot join the community. And those reasons are scriptural. And those reasons are also, you know, like gate, the gatekeeping practices of the community. So he kind of, when he asked that question, I think he's sort of expecting that Philip might say, well, here's the reasons why you can't be baptized. Yeah. Right? Right. And so he's sort he's he's become accustomed in some sense to people excluding him from things. And so the sort of radical openness that Philip expresses here, like there's nothing, like let's hop in that puddle, man, let's go, is really is really kind of radical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that he he doesn't ask it as well, can I be baptized? Mm-hmm. But it's almost like it's it sounds like it's his own sort of discovery of like, wait, what would stop me from being baptized? Mm, yeah. Which is such a like a beautiful moment of realization yep. to witness. No, I, I, that's exactly right. And I, I love what you were saying before, too, about his sort of this whole thing has been his own kind of self-discovery and his own kind of initiative. Mm -hmm. Philip does not say like, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yeah, he sure does not say, can I baptize you? The guy says, this is what I want to do. And Philip is there to, again, he's meeting him where he is. And when when he says, this is what I want to do, Philip says, okay, let's do it. But he is is not pressing this point. Yeah. That's so lovely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we talk about the disappearing... The disappearing yeah. Philip here. As I was reading verse 39, I totally thought, see, this is what it's like to read these texts for the first time. Like I've, I'm anticipating the ends of sentences before I get there. And I totally thought it was going to say the spirit of the Lord came upon the eunuch. Yeah. Like, cause that's what happens when you're baptized, right? Yeah. Like the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And then to read that instead it snatches <laughs> Philip. <laughs> Yeah. Was so 
jarring, but yeah. then but then again brought me right back to the story of that the road oh which was another road. I didn't yeah. even think about that to Emmaus. I almost said a mouse again. The road to Emmaus. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it comes right after just at the moment of sort of I don't know. I guess it's not quite at the moment of understanding, but it's like right after the baptism, like right after you could say that he has accomplished what maybe he's been sent to do. Just like in the story, I keep going back to the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. Like as soon as they put it all together, as soon as they get it, Jesus or here, Philip disappears. Yeah. I mean, the last time we talked about this theme, we said it was... I think where we came down was something like it's sort of like the like faith or the entirety of the faith is always a little bit just a little bit beyond your reach yeah. as one individual person and in you as soon as yeah. you sort of catch it it moves on and you have to keep pursuing it. Does that still feel right to you here or does it does it have a different resonance? I love that connection and you know the other the thing that I was thinking about there was like when you think about the Christian tradition these two stories take place in probably what are the two primary sacraments. In my tradition, the only two sacraments of the tradition, the Jesus breaking of the bread, that was sort of a prelude to the Lord's Supper, communion. Mm -hmm. And then this one is baptism. And so you've got this kind of disappearance related to each of those two sacraments. I mean, what become the sacraments? Yeah, yeah. So where I was going was something like the gospel is is conveyed in the in the ritual itself mm-hmm. so the breaking of the bread mm-hmm. opens their eyes the baptizing like seals the the new covenant and then the person who actually does the thing isn't really necessary anymore like you yeah. you don't want to focus on philip as the one who baptized right. you want to focus on the baptism itself and the one who is baptized yeah I don't know if that's quite the same as the elusive, like it's always just outside of your reach, but I, I do think there's something about depersonalizing yes. the, the ritual. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think especially when it's, maybe that that part becomes more clear here because it's not Jesus we're talking about. You know, we right. don't want to like depersonalize it away from Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we can Fair depersonalize enough. it away from yeah. Philip. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that I think that does really fit here. Well, I have to say, this is quite a lovely story. When I first read it, I experienced it as being so straightforward, like so tidy. Yeah. And and you know me, I don't like a tidy story. And no. so, so I had trouble thinking of what a good concluding point would be. But, yeah. but this conversation has really helped me, I don't know, think about some of the, the richness that's in here. Yeah. Where does this story bring you in the end? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first way that I'm reading this text today goes all the way back to that first conversation we were having about the identity of the eunuch and the sort of, you know, the way that that character doesn't fit into the neat and tidy social roles that society expected people to fit into. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's such an interesting text about, you know, this eunuch, because he is a eunuch, because he is an Ethiopian, he has experienced presumably at the temple that he is not allowed to be fully embraced in the worshiping community that he tried to be a part of. Yeah. And because of his sexual non-normativity, because of his status as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. And the reasons for that, you know, that's that line where he says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? 
seems to say like he has been primed for rejection. He, he is used to communities of faith kind of setting up barriers. And in this case, I think it's both scriptural, Deuteronomy 23, and then also just social. Um, here's, a, here's a literal gate that bars mm-hmm. you from, you can be on the periphery of our community, but you cannot be in the center of our community. Mm-hmm. And to me, the beauty of this text is Philip has none of that going on. He's like, I don't know what's what on earth is to prevent you from being baptized. Like the gate's wide open. I have this scriptural rule in my scripture, but I don't care about it. Seems to be where he is. Yeah. And you are you are welcome. There's no reason why you can't be baptized. And so I so I love that the openness of the of, of Philip and of the early Christian community to people who feel drawn to full inclusion in the community of God are welcomed and baptized into the full community of God. No ifs, ands, or buts. Just like mm-hmm. come on in. There's no scripture that's going to bar you. There's no social practice that's going to bar you. Bring your whole self into this community. And, and I love that. It is easy, I think, as a Christian to read that from the perspective of, oh, those Jews and their exclusive community, and oh, us Christians who are open to everyone. And I think that is an enormous mistake, because if that eunuch had kept reading for three more chapters, he would have gotten to Isaiah 56, where Isaiah says, hey, y'all eunuchs, stop worrying about being excluded from the temple, because here's a new rule for you. If you keep my Sabbath and keep my covenant, then you are welcome in my temple and I'm going to make a place for you there. So already within Judaism of second Isaiah is this idea of a temple that should be open to all. And so that exists Mm -hmm. in that, in that tradition, as you, as you well know, Mm -hmm. and Christian communities today are all about setting up barriers, both scriptural and social to bar people, especially LGBTQIA folks, but other people too, from being their full selves in the community. And so I I think we all ought to read this text as an invitation to say like, God doesn't care about these barriers. And so neither should we. If people Mm want to be part of the community, we should embrace them as their whole selves. We ought to be, you know, trying to emulate that in our communities. And we ought to be looking for the barriers that we've set up, whether scriptural or social or whatever they are, that prevent people's whole selves from being welcomed in the community. And we ought to be tearing those down and, and, and just, you know, leaping into puddles and baptizing people because <laughs> they get, you know, they, they feel called to the community. I love that. And I think, you know, as you're talking about about modern communities, Jewish and Christian communities, that still somehow wind up with barriers that keep people from being able to really access the joy of community life. I think a lot of it too is, I mean, sometimes it is really intentional and it is sort of, we find things in scripture that we can be like, oh, you can't come in. And so that's one thing, fine. But there's also a whole world of sort of unconscious barriers that we put up where we've set things up just expecting social norms and not realizing the way that they impact people whose lives don't look like ours for whatever reason. Yeah, And we make it very hard for them to to access community life. So, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a broad call to action that you have, that you have laid out for us and a really, really important one. Yeah. Where do you go when you read this text? You know, I go back, you know, I I mentioned sort of at the, the opening of our closing that when I first read this story, I said like, this is just such a tidy story. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with a tidy story. Yeah. And I, 
I'm realizing as I read this how invested I am in letting everyone else discover for themselves what they think is true mm-hmm. and how committed I am to not being the one to persuade people of things. I want to give them information and I want them to decide for themselves what they think. And that, I mean, it's just my personality type. I don't think there's a whole lot I can do about it. And I love the things we've pull, we've sort of highlighted in this text that show that Philip really is following the eunuch's lead in this conversation. Yeah. But he does ultimately interpret the text for him. Yeah. And so I've been sitting a little bit with my sort of discomfort with that. Yeah. And wanting somehow for the eunuch to be able to arrive at these things on his own. But I feel called by this text, I think, to think about times that I hold back on saying what I believe, even when someone asks me what I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem quite right either. You know, and it may maybe it comes from a good place of wanting everyone to not feel pressured by me to arrive at a certain conclusion. But maybe it comes from an overly inflated sense of importance that like somehow I'm going to control what you think by telling you what I think. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's. I don't know. It's just something for me to think about, I guess, especially as a as a teacher. You know, I we have a commitment to to helping people figure out what they think themselves. But sometimes that does, that can involve telling them what we believe to be true. Yeah. Especially when there is an explicit invitation to do that, like there is in this text. Yeah, I really love that. And, you know, I love the model that we've sort of pulled out in this text of Philip coming over and coming alongside, but not, you know, like jumping in and mm-hmm. waiting, asking questions, meeting him, meeting the eunuch where he is, picking up from the text that he's reading, waiting to be asked. I love all of that. But mm-hmm. what you're saying, I think is exactly right. That when the eunuch says, how can I understand this? Then Philip speaks his truth. Yeah. And to me, like that combination of things is the key. And I, yeah. And uh, I, I love the way you've put that, that you know what your truth is. And when people ask you to speak your truth, you know, this you text. speak it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And not be not be shy or embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Not force it on people. Yeah. Which is not yeah. what Philip does here. He doesn't just like run after the chariot, like shouting, you know, about Jesus. Know. He waits. <laughs> it's so funny because in the text when it says... And the point at which he gets in the chariot, I was like, wait, he's been running alongside the chariot this whole time? <laughs> it's yes, pretty, it's a little awkward. Yeah. It's a little awkward. <laughs> it's, it's humorous. It'd be a good puppet yeah. show. but Yeah, it would be a great puppet show. But <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> oh, well, next week is our last week in Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, reading about a council at Jerusalem. Got to decide what to do with those Gentiles. Yeah, it's an important question. It is. (laughs) It's great talking to you, Amy. I'll see you next time. I'll see you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bible Worm. If you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation about this text, join our Patreon at the Extended Worm level or higher to get access to extended episodes. You'll also find other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more starting at just $4 per month. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to all our supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. 
special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us again next week for our last week in Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. Until then, keep on digging.